Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Dig, a history podcast. If there's one thing we've learned in the past few months, it's that public health policy in general and vaccine policy in particular are controversial. President Biden has dramatically increased COVID-19 vaccine production and distribution. At the time of this recording, 15% of all Americans and 50% of seniors over the age of 65 have been vaccinated for COVID-19. Still, our pandemic problems persist. There are huge disparities in vaccination rates marked by class, race, and geography. Critics question the system of tiered eligibility, as many essential workers like those in the food industry are not yet eligible for the vaccine. Others don't trust pharmaceutical companies to tell the truth about the side effects or efficacy of their immunizations. Still more believe that compulsory vaccination violates their personal liberties and that vaccine mandates are a slippery slope into a fascist state. Particularly alarming is the fact that rates are on the rise in some areas of the country again, despite the successful mass vaccination efforts. But we're here to tell you that vaccination has always been controversial. Many of the concerns people have now about the COVID-19 vaccine were voiced in the past about the original smallpox vaccine. A few years ago, when we were the History Buffs podcast, we released an episode about the history of immunization and anti-vax movements. In light of a renewed interest in vaccination, we're revamping that tired old episode. This week, we attempt to add some historical context to our current vaccine debates by telling you the story of the invention of vaccination, its impact, its opponents, and the issues surrounding them. I'm Marissa. And I'm Elizabeth. And we are your historians for this episode of DIG. <laughs> Wow, we have some truly generous listeners. We want to thank all of our Patreon supporters. We are so honored to have listeners all over the world, a global community that is reflected in our incredible auger and excavator level patrons. Laura and Edward in Ohio, Denise in Albany, Maddie in Texas, Maggie in Oregon, Danielle in Idaho, Lisa in British Columbia, Agnes in Iceland, Iris in Washington, Maria in Germany, and Colin, Susan, and Peggy right here with us in Buffalo, New York. Thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our historian hearts. Listener, if you're not yet a patron of the show, it's easy. 
Check us out at patreon.com backslash dig podcast to learn more. Some historians argue that immunization in the form of inoculation was invented on the Indian subcontinent around the year 1000 CE as a means of preventing smallpox. The process was supposedly derived from one of the eight branches of Ayurvedic medicine called Agata Tantra, which dealt with the therapeutic use of toxins in small doses. Inoculation could be performed by introducing infected materials like pus or scabs from a sick person with needles into the skin of a healthy person. This was the preference of Indian practitioners whose Ayurvedic traditions had always favored the use of needles to introduce foreign materials to the skin. Alternatively, infected material could be insufflated or snuffed up into the nose. From India, the practice of inoculation is supposed to have spread to China, West Asia, and Africa in the following centuries. Inoculation was not introduced to Europe until relatively late in history. Medieval India, China, and Muslim West Asia were home to robust medical disciplines, while medieval Africa and Europe relied more on folk healing. Our first verified documentation of inoculation dates to 1549 and a treatise published in China. For this reason, some historians argue that inoculation was developed by the Chinese, who, it should be noted, preferred insufflation as the delivery method. It's difficult for us to pinpoint inoculation's exact origins because Chinese practitioners guarded this intellectual property zealously until the 17th century. Regardless of the practice's debatable origins, we know that inoculation was introduced to Western medicine by way of Constantinople sometime after 1650. Venetian physician Giacomo Pilarini traveled to Turkey in 1716 and wrote that inoculation had been introduced to Constantinople in 1660 by a Greek woman and that it was common practice in the Christian communities there. This possibility is supported by the fact that it was an old Greek practitioner who inoculated the first Europeans in 1721 in Turkey. These first inoculees, I don't know if that's a word, I'm just deciding it is. Sounds good to me. I know. (laughs) Were the Montague children. English aristocrat Lady Mary Wortley Montague and her family had resided in Constantinople since her husband, a British diplomat, had been stationed there in 1716. Lady Mary had witnessed firsthand the suffering that was caused by smallpox. In 1713, her younger brother, William Pierre Point, had died from the disease. He had only been 20 years old. He left behind a young wife, a two-year-old son, and an infant daughter. In December of 1714, Lady Mary herself contracted smallpox. We have detailed records about what this experience was like for her though she was a privileged, wealthy woman. Her experience still gives us some idea of how traumatic it was to suffer from smallpox in the 1700s. Lady Mary's illness began with a fever that lasted several days. She tossed and turned, alternating between hot flashes and cold sweats. Her head pounded and the room swayed as she vomited into a wash basin. Terrified that she had one of the many deadly diseases that were endemic to London and that she may pass it on to her vulnerable children, Lady Mary sent her son Edward and his nurse away in the early morning hours. She was terrified that she may have smallpox, but since it took several days to display the telltale signs, she waited nervously to see what would become of her. 
Since she was a wealthy woman, her physicians attended her dutifully each day. A surgeon bled her by cutting a vein in her arm, and the physicians administered daily rounds of emetics and laxatives, which caused her to vomit and evacuate her bowels. They prescribed a drink of ground-up saltpeter and bezoar stone. Saltpeter is an ingredient in gunpowder and was made by spreading a blanket over a decaying vegetation and then sprinkling it with urine. Bezoar stone is calcified hair and food that is found in the stomachs of animals. And we actually mentioned the use of bezoar stones in early modern medicine in our medicinal cannibalism episode, if you want to check that one out. Um, I, and I think, too, in Harry Potter, the bezoar stone is actually what gets Ron out of uh, mm-hmm. being poisoned. Yep. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but regardless, this sounds like basically a calcified hairball for all of you cat owner, so I can't imagine it was probably tasting pretty good. (laughs) No. Um, So she's doing all of these horrendous things, and she knows she's sick, but she doesn't yet know what she's sick with. She also doesn't know if she's passed on the illness to her child. So she waits. She suffers and waits to see what her fate and that of her child will be. After a few days, her worst fears are confirmed when red bumps begin to appear on her skin. When her smallpox diagnosis was confirmed, she inquired frantically about the welfare of her child, and his caretakers assured her that he was still unspotted. That's a quote. Lady Mary's physicians were concerned as the signature red bumps filled with a clear liquid, which over time turned into an opalescent grayish white. They had the appearance of large, flattened pimples. These were the pox. Lady Mary herself watched in horror as the pox grew into one another, swelling her face into one massive, grotesque blister. She was fed nothing but oatmeal or barley gruel, sometimes boiled with figs, tamarind, or plums. She drank small beer, acidulated with lemon or lime, and diluted sweet German wine. That actually sounds quite pleasant. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Of course, the big, you know, pox on your face. Right, not pleasant, right. So one week into the illness, her fever finally abated. The pus filling her pox hardened into a beeswax yellow and the redness subsided, but the swelling did continue. The skin on her face was stretched nearly to the point of bursting. Her fingers were so swollen she could not even hold a pen. Her mouth was filled with sores as well as on her tongue and the roof of her mouth. Her tongue was so swollen that it became unbearably painful even to swallow, and she became unable to speak. On the tenth day of her illness, she took a turn for the worse. Her fever spiked yet again, higher than ever. The pustules all over her body began to burst, and their contents stink horribly. Her monthly period arrived, an added inconvenience in her debilitated state, And while Lady Mary fought for her life in this very critical stage of the illness, London's high society gossiped about her family's fate and whispers about how, even if she survived, she probably will have lost her beauty forever. James Bridges, Earl of Carnarvon, wrote to a friend in Scotland, quote, Poor Lady Mary Wortley has the smallpox. Just as it began to her great joy to be known, she was in favor with one whom everyone who looks on cannot but love. Her husband, too, is inconsolable over the disappointment this gives him in the career he had chalked out of his fortunes, end quote. While Lady Luden, also in a letter, wrote with more hope, quote, with a pair of eyes like Lady Mary's being marked as nothing, end quote. 
Lady Mary was, however, unaware of their whispers. On day 11, her swollen skin burst and strips of it fell away. Secondary infections began to take hold in her broken skin. Boils erupted where her blisters had been. A brown crust of scabs enveloped her entire body, leaking blood-stained pus. Her temperature hovered between 103 and 105 degrees Fahrenheit as her breath began to rattle in her chest. She fell in and out of feverish delirium. As members of the London Society gathered for Christmas festivities, they talked in hushed tones about how Lady Mary would surely die. On the 15th day of her illness, Lady Mary's fever broke, this time for good. She momentarily gained consciousness, only to inquire about the health of her son. Her nurse assured her that he was safe, meaning he was free from smallpox and safe from this harrowing experience. And upon hearing this news, Lady Mary fell into the deep sleep that began her recuperation. Though Lady Mary was known to be through the worst of it, it took weeks for her to lose her scabs, for the swelling to go down, and for her ragged breathing to recover. As the trauma of the illness faded, a fresh horror arose. Lady Mary was permanently disfigured. Her nose, lips, and eyelids remained swollen and red. Her eyelashes had fallen out, and her skin was marked by reddish-brown craters. Fully aware of the impact this disfigurement would have on her life, Lady Mary wrote the following poem shortly after seeing her new face for the first time. So I'm going to read, um, this isn't the whole poem, but it's uh, an excerpted, it's an excerpt. How am I changed, alas, how am I grown, a frightful specter to myself unknown? Where's my complexion, where the radiant bloom that promised happiness for years to come? Then with what pleasure I this face surveyed, to look once more, my visits oft delayed. Charmed with the view, a fresher red would rise, and a new life shot sparkling from my eyes. Ah, faithless glass, my wanted bloom restore. Alas, I rave, that bloom is now no more. The greatest good the gods on men bestow, even youth itself to me is useless now. There was a time, oh, that I could forget, when opera tickets poured before my feet. And at the ring, where brightest beauties shine, the earliest cherries of the spring were mine. Witness, O oh, lily, and thou mata tell, how much Japan these eyes have made ye sell. With what contempt ye you saw me oft despise the humble offer of the raffled prize. For at the raffle still the prize I bore, with scorn rejected or with triumph war. Now beauties fled and presents are no more. So she's basically uh, in her 18th century uh sensibilities kind of describing describing um how she was kind of the darling of london society and she could really have anything that she wanted um and how that's just all gone now and, and it sounds kind of it sounds a little bit vain in a way i suppose but um for a woman in the 18th century um that was a great amount of the power that that she held over really anyone. Mm -hmm. So now that was kind of gone. Right. 
So we just spent a really long time on Lady Mary's experience, but we think that it's important for people today who have never experienced smallpox to be aware of how traumatic this experience was for people. There was the physical experience of going through the illness, all the pox and the pus and the blood and everything like that, but as well as the fear and the anxiety for spreading it to your loved ones, compounded by the fear of death. And then, of course, for those who survived it, the long-term impact of disfigurement. So it's hardly surprising that after this experience, Lady Mary was living with her family in Constantinople, uh, that she heard tell of old Greek practitioners who were performing operations on Turkish children that made them immune to the dreaded smallpox. So in March of 1718, she had her son inoculated there in Turkey. The practitioner made a small incision on his arm and introduced infected material to the wound. Her son was briefly and mildly ill, but then he recovered and was presumably immune to smallpox. And the procedure appeared to have worked as described. Three years later, Lady Mary and her family were living back in London when a horrific smallpox epidemic broke out in various areas around the country. London physicians had heard of the process of inoculation, and they knew it was performed in the East, but none of them had taken it upon themselves to bring the procedure to England. Eager to protect her daughter, Lady Mary arranged to have her five-year-old daughter inoculated. She invited several physicians to attend the procedure and observe the outcome. Much like it had three years earlier, the process resulted in a short, mild illness for the child and subsequent immunity. The British physicians in attendance were impressed. Since Lady Mary was an aristocrat who moved in the most elite of circles, the royal family heard about her daughter's inoculation, and the next year, 1722, they had the royal children inoculated for smallpox as well. Despite its acceptance by England's elites, smallpox inoculation, which will come to be called variolation, met intense opposition from the start. Months after the royal children's variolation, London vicar Edmund Massey preached against inoculation, or as he called it, a diabolical operation which usurps an authority founded neither in the laws of nature or religion and promotes increases of vice and immorality, end quote. In a sermon delivered at St. Andrew's, Holborn, Massey declared that inoculation would promote unchristian behavior, and he went on to say, quote, Some are made honest for fear of a prison. Others continue chaste for fear of infection. A great many are just for fear of losing their character. And no doubt several are religious, more out of fear of going to hell than anything else. So that we see the worst of evils have their use, and in this sense, and by proper reflection, we may make a moral of the devil himself, should all restraint of this sort be taken away, where there be no fear of punishment in this life, not belief of any in the next, should inquiry and reputation be joined together and health be handmade to uncleanliness. So basically he's saying like bad stuff happens to people and you be good and we can't like F with nature because that kind of goes against the, like the, the, the will of God. Is that basically what he's saying? Yeah, and also uh, in a more practical sense, if people aren't afraid of being, you know, 
smote by God's illnesses, if they're, you know, if people aren't afraid of being plagued by some illness because of their bad behavior, they're just going to behave badly. I see. I see. Yeah. So he's saying they kind of have a function. Diseases have a function in our society. Gotcha. So obviously, I mean, yeah, if you're not super religious, that argument doesn't hold up for you. But it was compelling to a lot of people at the time. And still is, really. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Um, Similar religious objections to inoculation spread like wildfire in the British colonies of New England. In 1721, the physician Zabdiel Boylston inoculated his son and two of his slaves after a smallpox-infected ship from the West Indies arrived in Boston's harbor. William Cooper and Cotton Mather published a pamphlet addressing the many disputes that had erupted in response. The pamphlet begins, quote, The new method of receiving the smallpox by incision, or inoculation as tis commonly called, has been, you know, the subject not only of plentiful discourse, but of angry debate and fierce contention among us in this town, end quote. And remember, they're talking about Boston. Gotcha. So other critics argued that inoculation was not safe or effective. This was simply not borne out by the evidence, and this became increasingly clear over time as the practice spread across Europe and its colonies. For example, the spread of inoculation in colonial Boston yielded impressive results. The 1721 smallpox epidemic infected 6,000 people in Boston and killed 844 of those people. And that's a mortality rate uh, of one out of six people. Uh, The same year, 286 Bostonians were inoculated and only six died, and that's a mortality rate of one out of 46. So when combined with statistics from Britain and continental Europe, the mortality rate of smallpox inoculation was adjusted to one in 50. Given these statistics, Boylston saved at least 40 lives in Boston that year. It's always amazed me too, like when... When people now will say, oh, vaccine injury and vaccine and vaccines causing death and things like that, which which we know they do because some people are allergic to them or or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. It's still the chance of it is much less than one in 50. But to these. But to these people, uh, the, the death rate from inoculation itself was one in 50 and it was still super worth it. So right. that to me really tells me how horrific smallpox really was that a chance of one a chance of death of one in 50 a chance of one in 50 they were willing to take right it's yeah am- that's a amazing good point. really um yeah so the last objection to inoculation that we'll mention here is one that amounted to a valid challenge of the practice um, people who were inoculated were contagious and could therefore spread the disease to others In the American colonies, obviously not forever, but they were contagious while they were experiencing symptoms. Mm -hmm. In the American colonies, uh, where population density was lower and quarantine was more effective, this was less of a concern. Bostonians were able to use a small island off the coast as an inoculation oasis. Due to this luxury, colonials were able to institute mass inoculation. In 1777, George Washington ordered that all Continental troops be inoculated once smallpox appeared in their ranks. 
But in the densely populated urban centers in Europe, mass inoculation was risky and was never pursued for fear that it would spark an epidemic. It was during the 18th century that the vulnerability of the poor began to be noticed in Europe. Several physicians, such as John Coakley Letzum and John Haygarth, expressed the desire to inoculate the poor in European cities, but such ideas were never executed since the risk of contagion was so high. This, however, was all about to change. Enter vaccination. The origin story of vaccination begins in the most unlikely of places, on a cattle farm in rural Dorset, England. There, a farmer and cattle breeder named Benjamin Jesty believed that he had inadvertently immunized himself against smallpox in the course of his occupation. He and two of his milkmaids had contracted cowpox on the farm at some point. Both milkmaids, Anne Notley and Mary Reed, discovered their immunity when they attended family members who had contracted smallpox, and neither woman contracted the disease themselves. In 1774, there was a wave of smallpox cases in Jesty's village. In a desperate attempt to protect his family, Jesty took his wife and two toddlers to a neighboring farm where he'd heard that one of the cows had an active case of cowpox. He used his wife's knitting needles to collect infected material from the cow and to inoculate his wife and children. All three survived the procedure and their illness was mild. The, his wife's illness was a little bit more serious. She was a little more sick than the children, but still mm -hmm. not so much that she died. Fifteen years later, another smallpox epidemic visited the village. The local surgeon, Mr. Trowbridge, inoculated a few dozen children in the village with smallpox, and the Jesty children were the only ones who did not contract the infection. Though Jesty never had any interest in publishing the results of his anecdotal study, he did inoculate other villagers with the cowpox at their request. Given the provincial and undocumented nature of Justy's experiment, it was largely forgotten or unknown. Justy's experiment was enshrined in local history with an inscription on his tombstone. <laughs> That's neat. So meanwhile, after training with the celebrated surgeon John Hunter, who we discuss extensively in our forensic pathology episode, the young physician Edward Jenner returned to his hometown, a tiny village called Barclay in Gloucestershire. Jenner spent several decades treating patients as a country doctor, where he often treated milkmaids and other folks who spent time with animals. In his capacity as a physician, he regularly inoculated the locals for smallpox, and he found that the operation did not take. His patients, especially those that had previously contracted cowpox, failed to contract smallpox after the infected material was introduced to their arms. Cowpox was an inf infectious disease that most often impacted cows, but was also transmittable to humans. Based on this observation, Jenner hypothesized that he might be able to immunize people against smallpox if he inoculated someone with infected matter from a person who contracted cowpox. He further hypothesized that he might be able to use the infected matter from the first cowpox inoculated person to inoculate another, and so on and so on. This process would come to be known as arm-to-arm -arm transmission. And it wasn't until 1796, however, that he was able to conduct an experiment to this end. Jenner successfully inoculated a little boy named James Phipps with infectious lymph material from the hand of a milkmaid named Sarah Nelms. 
I like to include these people's names because they're like otherwise unknown to history, like entirely. Like nobody knows who they are. We just we just know their names exactly, and are like super <laughs> right. important. Right. You know, yeah. Um. So lymph is a is a clear fluid that's derived from blood plasma, and it contains white blood cells. So when someone has an infection, lymph is secreted in the form of pus. So just so we're, we'll we'll sometimes say pus. Sometimes we'll be saying lymph. That's what we're talking about. Um, so Nelms had contracted the cowpox naturally in the course of her occupation. Several weeks after Jenner introduced cowpox into Phipps's system, he attempted to inoculate him with smallpox. Lo and behold, the smallpox infection did not develop. Phipps was indeed immune to smallpox, and even better, he was not contagious to others after the cowpox was administered. Jenner published a report of this experiment in 1798 called An Inquiry into the Causes and Effects of Varioli Vaccini, which is the scientific name for cowpox. Uh, it is unclear if Jenner knew about Benjamin Jesty's story at the time of his own experiments. It's likely that Jenner made similar observations independently. However, Jenner and his followers became aware of Jesty at some point because in 1805, the Jennerian Society invited Jesty to London to celebrate his contribution to medical science. At the original vaccine institution on Broad Street, Jesty was celebrated by the society and made to sit for a portrait by the painter M.W. Sharp. The Janarian Society presented him with gold mountain lancets, the sharp portrait, and a long statement about their debt to him, signed by all the members. That's actually kind of cool. Yeah, that is kind of nice, right? Because, I mean, Jenner has been the one who's gotten down in history for this, mm -hmm. but it seems to be partly because Justy wasn't really interested in... Um, right, claiming it. Yeah, he was apparently didn't really want to go to London and did, was felt really shy about this portrait and didn't really want to accept these things. You know, he didn't really feel like he was fancy enough to be right. honored this way. But it's kind of nice that they did it anyway. Yeah. Um, back to 1798 when Jenner's publication hit the presses. So the impact of Jenner's publication is difficult to overstate. In London, Surgeon Henry Klein and George Pearson, a physician at St. Thomas's Hospital, advocated for the new practice and opened a public vaccine dispensary. At the time, it was referred to as Kynepox inoculation, kind meaning cow, Kynepox inoculation, but um, by 1803, it had come to be called vaccination from vaca, the Latin for cow. German physicians C.F. Strohmeyer and G.F. Ballhorn vaccinated 2,000 people in Hanover from 1799 to 1801, so it's already reached the um, continental Europe the, the very next year. Okay. American physician Benjamin Waterhouse read Jenner's essay and immediately sent for a sample of lymph material from England. It arrived in 1800, soaked into threads and protected in a sealed bottle. Waterhouse immediately vaccinated his five-year-old son and six of his servants. Weeks later, he tried to infect them with smallpox material harvested from a patient suffering from the disease, and they were immune. Waterhouse subsequently advocated for mass vaccination with the support of Thomas Jefferson. Waterhouse greedily guarded the cowpox strain he'd acquired even as he publicized it widely. Some American physicians paid substantial licensing fees to obtain some limp from him. Other physicians in New England were forced to obtain material from England after Waterhouse refused to share. That's so sh um, Is he like getting rich off of it? Or that's what he was hoping. 
So uh-huh. um, Waterhouse's monopoly on vaccine material in the United States had disastrous consequences for some. Desperate for cowpox material, physicians were harvesting lymph from untrusted sources. In Marblehead, Massachusetts, 68 people died after they were mistakenly infected with full-blown smallpox rather than vaccine. Thankfully, most physicians were committed to making the vaccine available to the public. In 1802, New York physician Valentine Seaman opened the Institute for the Inoculation of the Kindpox, which provided free vaccinations to the poor. By 1801, Jenner's inquiry appeared in all of the main European languages, and over 100,000 people had been vaccinated in England alone. The British Empire's long tentacles allowed for vaccination to be introduced as far as China by 1805. Surgeons traveling with the East Indian Company advocated for the practice and brought lymph material with them on their travels. Swiss-born physician Jean DeCaro was instrumental in delivering the vaccine to Eastern Europe, the Ottoman Empire, and Russia. DeCaro made an unsuccessful attempt at shipping the vaccine to India in 1799. The material arrived contaminated by the voyage. He tried again in 1802 with a strain he'd obtained from Italian cows. The sample arrived in Mumbai in 1802, where it was used to vaccinate the first Indian on June 14th. This supply was sustained arm to arm all the way to Sri Lanka, Madras, and Calcutta. While Waterhouse had luck obtaining cowpox strains preserved on threads, arm-to-arm transmission was still the primary mode of vaccination. Continued vaccination relied on the constant presence of cowpox pustules from which to harvest infected material. It took impeccable timing and constant ministration to the vaccination process. Remote areas were unable to obtain live samples, and countries without developed medical infrastructures were unable to maintain a living sample for long. For example, all of Thailand remained unvaccinated until 1840, when they successfully obtained a cowpox strain from a boat arriving from Boston. So as you can imagine, transporting lymph material sometimes took elaborate planning. In 1803, King Charles IV of Spain commissioned royal physician Francisco Xavier de Balmas to bring smallpox vaccination to Spanish America. De Balmas and his assistants brought 22 abandoned children on their voyage by ship. They vaccinated the boys in sets of two throughout the trip so that someone would have fresh pustules at any given time. When the ship docked at Caracas, there was only one visible cowpox pustule left on one of the boys. Using material from this pustule, Dabamas initiated arm-to-arm vaccination in South America. All 22 children were eventually adopted and educated in Mexico at the expense of the Spanish crown. As the merits of vaccination became apparent, physicians urged their respective governments to outlaw inoculation. For example, Jean de Caro wrote, quote, It is inconsistent for a government to encourage vaccination and not forbid inoculation, end quote. While most governments stopped short of outlawing inoculation, many countries passed legislation that regulated inoculation and encouraged vaccination. In 1813, the U.S. Congress passed an act to encourage vaccination, which established a national vaccine agency. Baltimore physician James Smith was appointed the national vaccine agent. The act also required that the U.S. Post Office carry mail weighing up to 0.5 ounces for free if it contained smallpox vaccine material. 
1820, the demographic impact of vaccination was undeniable. Before vaccination, smallpox was the primary cause of infant mortality. One physician discovered that smallpox killed one out of every 10 Swedish children in the 1760s. In Berlin, from 1758 to 1774, there were 6,705 smallpox deaths. Of these, 5,876, so 88%, occurred in children who were five years of age or younger. Likewise, the London bills of mortality from a similar period showed that 50% of all deaths occurred in children five years or younger. After the advent of vaccination, life expectancy rose around the world. Smallpox hospitals saw less traffic and eventually closed down. Smallpox deaths decreased by 91% in Sweden. From 1811 to 1820, the London Bills of Mortality documented 7,858 deaths from smallpox, down from 18,447 deaths in the last decade before vaccination, so 1791 to 1800. That's a big decrease. (laughs) Yeah, a huge difference. And I would think that it's even more impactful because it's because of its impact on children. Right. You know, um, it basically increased life expectancy calculations like a ton because not so many really, really young children were dying. It really um, helped improve infant mortality rates. Right. While vaccination was much safer than inoculation, it did come with certain risks. The method of arm-to-arm transmission sometimes resulted in unwanted infections like hepatitis and sexually transmitted infections. It was also clear that cowpox transmitted from human to human lost potency over time. For this reason, scientists continued to innovate. As early as 1805, physicians in Naples began experimenting with animal vaccines as an alternative to the arm-to-arm method. They would intentionally grow the cowpox virus on the leg of a calf and harvest the infectious material from there. In 1810, the director of Neapolitan Vaccine Service, Gennaro Galbiati, retrovaccinated a calf with human vaccine lymph. So basically... A human was was vaccinated with cowpox, and then they took the material from the human's um, pus from that cowpox and then retro-vaccinated a calf, meaning put it back into a calf. So going back and forth from, from a cow to a human to a calf again. He then harvested the resultant animal lymph, so now he's taking that, and used it to vaccinate humans. So he's going back and forth and back and forth. Um, Galbiati was pleased with the results. He says, quote, one vaccination performed with vaccine from the cow manifests its effects much more energetically without being more dangerous or less protective than humanized virus. And two vaccination performed with virus from the cow offers the advantage that no other diseases can be communicated by it. End quote. This arm to arm alternative remained unknown outside of Naples until the 1860s. Disease in general was rampant in 19th century Europe, and physicians became aware that arm-to-arm vaccination was occasionally aiding in the spread of other infections, most notably syphilis. French doctors identified the Neapolitan practice of animal vaccination as a way to minimize the likelihood of transmitting syphilis during the process of vaccination. In 1864, a team of French uh, physicians studied the effectiveness of using animal hosts and subsequently advocated for that method. 
From that point forward, vaccination by calf became popular in continental Europe and America. The practice was not legalized in Britain until 1881, and arm-to-arm vaccination remained prevalent there until it was banned by law in 1898. In 1836, English physician Edward Ballard developed a way to boost the potency of the vaccine. Rather than using old strains that had been passed arm-to-arm for decades, Ballard suggested using new strains of cowpox from cows that suffered recent infections. After vaccinating humans with these new strains, he harvested lymph from their pustules and retrovaccinated cows to boost the strain's potency yet again. This new and more effective method quickly became the standard for smallpox vaccination. These vaccine developments made the practice of smallpox inoculation, or variolation as it has come to be called, obsolete. Britain's Vaccination Act of 1840 outlawed variolation and provided for free vaccination for all British infants. A subsequent British Vaccination Act of 1853 made smallpox vaccination mandatory for all infants in the first three months of life. Parents who failed to vaccinate their infants faced steep fines or imprisonment. This was far from the first attempt at compulsory vaccination. States all over the world had attempted mandatory vaccination laws for decades. Napoleon's sister, Marianne Elisa Bonaparte, Princess of Luca and Piombino, was the first ruler to introduce mandatory vaccination in 1805. Massachusetts was the first state in the United States to mandate vaccination for school children in 1855. While vaccination had always had its detractors, vaccine mandates stimulated a new wave of passionate critics. The 1853 British vaccine mandate is a good case in point. In Britain, the guardians of the poor, who were local authorities, were responsible for enforcing compulsory vaccination. Over the next 20 years, anti-vaxxers band together to elect guardians of the poor who they knew would not enforce the mandate. This loophole was closed in 1874 by another vaccination act, which compelled local authorities to act in accordance with the national law. Angry at what they perceived as an overreach of national authority and supported by a hostile anti-vax constituency, the Guardians of the Poor in Keeley, which is in Yorkshire, quashed prosecutions against anti-vax parents and fired their appointed vaccination officer. Enraged at this insubordination, the local health board incarcerated the seven guardians in York Castle. Anti-vax locals retaliated, and after several skirmishes, the guardians were released. In addition to local action, angry Brits established activist associations such as the National Anti-Vaccination League in 1866 and the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League in 1874. Other countries experienced similar movements. The American Anti-Vaccination League had its first meeting in New York City in 1882. The same year, abolitionist Frederick Douglass expressed the opinion that mandatory vaccines violated personal liberty. In Germany and Switzerland, the Lebensreform movement expressed its opposition to vaccination. Vaccine opposition groups began forming a few years before the vaccine mandate was signed into law in 1874. Before long, Germany's Imperial Association Opposing Compulsory Vaccination had 300,000 members. Despite the opposition and hostility to the German vaccine mandate, the legislation had an impressive impact on the nation's health. 
One medical journal reported that after the law of 1874 went into effect, the annual mortality rate in Prussia fell so that between 1875 and 1886, the average yearly mortality per 100,000 of population was only 1.91. On the other hand, in Austria, where the lax vaccination and revaccination requirements remained unchanged, the mortality of smallpox during about the same period, roughly 1872 to 1884, actually increased, varying between 39.28 and 94.79 per 100,000 of population. In 1897, there were but five deaths from this disease in the entire German Empire, with a population of 54 million. It's amazing, isn't it? It's so. It is I mean, the so the the death rates between uh, Austria and Prussia, one point nine one in Prussia, where they have mandatory vaccines, and thirty nine point two eight and ninety four point seven nine was the variation in Austria, where they don't. So we're talking they don't enforce right, it. Yeah, thirty or let's say twenty five to eighty times more deaths without the. Yeah. So it's. It's incredible. Um, Most countries responded to anti-vax activism in similar ways. In Britain, a royal commission conducted a comprehensive survey of the vaccination issue and delivered several reports to Parliament in the 1890s. The commission's findings were used to craft the 1898 Vaccination Act, which retained compulsory vaccination but allowed for exemptions for conscientious objections. In most countries, exemptions served as a compromise that diffused the worst of the hostility by opponents. The end results were mixed. Many communities continued to vaccinate for smallpox as a matter of course, but occasional smallpox epidemics did occur, especially in areas with low vaccination rates. This happened often in the United States. Because of its federalist system and passionate investment in states' rights, a national vaccination mandate eluded them for decades after they became common in Europe. As a result, the United States had pockets where vaccination was neglected. For example, an outbreak occurred in Muncie, Indiana in 1897 and another in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1925. Still, generally speaking, the public's confidence in vaccine science increased over time. Scientists use Edward Jenner's philosophy to develop and manufacture vaccines for other diseases such as cholera, diphtheria, rabies, polio, and pertussis. Though there's plenty more vaccine history in the 20th century, we're going to bring this episode to a close here and perhaps plan another episode in the near future dealing with vaccination in the 20th century. But first, I wanted to ask Elizabeth if there's any things you wanted to discuss because I think that there's a couple of really interesting points here that I didn't have time to like flesh out in the episode and one of them that I want to make sure we talk about for a second is the practice of um, vaccinating or inoculating one's children servants or slaves Mm, yeah that's a good one I go ahead yes they don't they don't have a choice. I mean, with children, it's like, well, you're their parent. So I suppose before they're adults, then you kind of do have the say. But for your slaves or your servants, they're kind of being compelled to go along with this, whether they want to or not. Right. And you're purposely giving them smallpox, at least in the beginning. <laughs> um, 
with inoculation. Yeah, no, I mean, I guess for me, it's surprising how many people were willing to experiment on their own children in the first place. Um, like, hmm, let's see if this works, kids. You know, I'm going to give you this disease that is known to be uh, quite deadly and horrific. And let's see if this little experiment that I'm doing is working. So in answer to your question, like, I think it's apples and oranges. Uh, you know, experimenting on your kids is something very much uh, different than experimenting on your servants mm -hmm. and slaves. And so in your question, that makes me think of Deidre uh, Cooper Owen's book, Medical Bondage, mm -hmm. about the uh, origins of American gynecology and uh, kind of the quote-unquote, you know, father of American gynecology, uh, this guy named Sims, did all of his experience on, uh, experiments on ex enslaved women. So uh, I, think it's, I think it's an important thing for you to point out that, you know, so much of this uh, experimentation is, is done on people who don't have a lot of uh, say. So I'm thinking of the, the 22 orphaned boys that are, you know, brought on this, uh -huh. this ship and, you know, past, past, uh, you know, cowpox throughout the, the voyage, right? They, they don't have any, they don't have any say on, on whether they're going to uh, participate in this or not they're 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 forced into it right they're kind of treated like like just meat like oh like you're just a human body that we can like you're kind of useless because you're an orphan so let's just um you know inoculate you with the cowpox and just you know see what happens and it's sort of mm -hmm. disconcerting and it's what's disconcerting to me i guess is how little the ethical implications of all that is really discussed because if you read a lot of histories of uh, medicine, specifically histories of vaccination, they don't really bring that up. They're just like, oh, yeah, this person just vaccinated his servants or vaccinated his slaves or whatever, and they're amazing and they're a hero. Mm -hmm. But it's sort of like think about what that actually looked like at the time. It's, um, I guess, sort of troubling to me. Very troubling, yeah. And kind of reiterates the kind of dark past that the history of medicine um, sometimes covers up behind progress, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other thing was the vaccine mandate issue because, you know, obviously now in the 21st century we deal with um, anti-vax movements. And I would say that most of the anti-vax movements are not anti-vaccination so much as they are anti-compulsory vaccination. Right. Um, and I think that that was also the case in the 19th century. Um, they were a little better about articulating that. Like they were called the Anti-Compulsory Vaccination League, for example, in the UK. Mm -hmm. um, but now, I, I, and I always used to think, well, anti-vax people aren't anti-science they're just anti-compulsory vaccination but now that COVID has happened we know there are truly a lot of people who are very anti-science <laughs> um and I don't know how I feel about it anymore um obviously it's you can't generalize but um, yeah that's what I was gonna say I mean there are so many different reasons like I think we'd have to have like a whole nother uh, episode <laughs> to even go through. But I, you know, one, one thing that I think is, it's such a, it's, it's the fear of the unknown. And mm -hmm. I think so much of it is, is brought about by fear. And, and the reason I say that is I'm actually thinking, and I wanted to ask you if you have seen this before, have you watched the HBO series of John Adams? That it was a mini series probably came out like 10, 15 with Paul years Giamatti. ago. Huh? Oh yeah. With Paul. With yeah, Paul yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't think I watched I don't think I finished it, but I started watching it. So 
in that Abigail Adams actually vaccinates or inoculates her children. And so uh, in the in the series, there's actually a doctor that's that's going around and he's got he's got a kid in the back of a cart um, kind of harkening back to what you're talking about, like people who don't really have any say in this medical experimentation. Uh, so this kid he's he's dragging around has a, an active case of smallpox with the, the push tools all over him and, and comes to the Adams's house, you know, and takes a little bit of the, the pus from the push tools and then inoculates the children. And then they're all, um, uh, you know, get sick and, and you see them sick. And, you know, I think, I think the daughter almost dies from it. Um, I remember that episode. So I did definitely see that one. I can remember they were very anxious, like awaiting to see what would happen. Um, what course their illness would take. Right. Right. So I'm not, you know, uh, I mean, it's a TV show, so, you know, there's, there's, there's questions about uh, how that, that really went down. But, but the reason I bring it up is, is again, this, this fear that, you know, what if you're the one in the 50 or the one in, gosh, I don't even know death rates for, say, the COVID vaccine, you know, one in mm-hmm. a million that, mm-hmm. that is going to die. Like, uh, like so much of it is, 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 is fear of being um, forced into taking that gamble, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, and it makes sense. And, and you know, it's it's arguable whether we actually have vaccine mandates in the U.S. because a lot of people would say that, like, the fact that you have to be vaccinated to go to school, that is a vaccine mandate. But it's not really because you have other options than going to a public school. Yeah. You have other um, options. Yeah, exactly. And there's there's all kinds of uh, right. exemptions yeah. that you can so take. Th- it's it's sort of like we don't. I don't even think we we don't have mandatory vaccination on the scale that they had in the 19th century at all in Europe. And and I wonder in Europe, yeah. And I wonder if it's. I wonder if. You know we are. We have been untouched by smallpox for so long that we um, aren't. I don't know how to word it, but that we we aren't afraid of it like they were at the time. You know, they they had genuinely, uh, you know, mass uh, right. inva- or vaccination mandates where like you were born, you got a vaccination. The end. Um, well, I mean, you could you could equate it to the polio vaccine. You know, there's really not very, very many people alive today that experienced the uh, polio on the. Uh, amount that people that were living in the early 20th century did right and so um you know after people have an or, or even measles or mumps right like mm-hmm. after that generation that has experience with it is gone like the the fear of it almost is gone as well which i think also kind of fuels some of this um you know act anti wanting to to vaccinate your children uh, mm-hmm. because it, until it happens and then people are like, oh, my God, holy crap. Like, this right. is a real horrible disease and mm-hmm. I've made a terrible mistake, you know. Right. Like, I actually anticipated a lot more people being ambivalent or against the COVID vaccine than are. But almost everybody in my life, even people who are kind of reticent about other vaccinations, um, are super into wanting to get the COVID vaccine. And I think it's because that we're not so far removed from that experience. The experience of COVID, I mean. Right, right, right. Uh, Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Okay, so let's wrap it up. Uh, 
I think we should. I think you're right, though. I think uh, I think maybe one of us should do something about the 20th century. I would definitely like mm-hmm. to do something about polio for sure. Yeah, I would too. Um, it's so. definitely polio and the rabies vaccine stories is all, is also really Ooh. interesting too. Um, okay. It's a very international story, super interesting. So maybe a 20th century vaccine story would be mm-hmm. would be nice. Okay, cool. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Leave us ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Visit our website at digpodcast.org. You can email us at hello at digpodcast.org. Yes. Um, Or you can visit us at dig underscore history um, on Twitter or go to our um, Patreon, uh, which we mentioned earlier in the show. We always welcome your feedback and we always welcome your support. And also... um, if you have a COVID-19 story or or even just a story from 2020 or early 2021 that uh, feels like it's part of this plague year, whether it's the COVID plague or um, the plague of uh, police brutality or any kind of plague, um, go to uh, covid-19archive.org and share your story. It's an open access archive that I'm, um, I'm one of the project leads on it. So we always want to hear people's stories. Um, and I, I thank you for sharing ahead of time. If you do. Yes. Stay safe and many, many good vaccinations to you. Yes. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Dates to Africa and whoops. Called Aganda Tantra. Wait. As members of Luda. Oops. It's Marianne. What did Elisa I say? Bonaparte. Not Elisa. You said Elsa. Elsa. <laughs> you said Elsa. Named Benjamin Jetsy believed that he and oh Jesty like Chesty gotcha. like yeah <laughs> yep. In uh, Germany and Switzerland, the Lieb- Lebens Lebens reform. Lebens reform. Yeah. I mean, I don't speak German, but that sounds good to me. Administer daily rounds of emetics. Emetics. Glush. Now I forget how you say it. Glut. And glush. Glut. Blah. Is it vaccine? I think it's. Variola vaccine. It's, it's Latin. What? Yeah, let's say that. Oh that my sounds God. Good. <laughs> what? Oh, just. It's Latin. I, know, I don't just know people Latin. People who are like probably know this are like these. Varioli. It's probably variolae. Variolae vaccini. Okay, let's go with that. Variolae vaccini. Okay. Returned to his hometown, a tiny village called Berkeley in Gloucestershire. 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 It's like Worcestershire. It's like I one know. of those ridiculous ones. Okay. All three survived the procedure and their illness was mild. Wait, what? Just repeated myself. Um, John Coakley, Letsom, and Jay. Oh my God, I can't talk. Quote, what a pair. Quote. The young physician, Edward Jenner, returned to his hometown, a tiny village named, uh, a tiny. Oh, it's Barkley. I said Barkley. Well, that probably sounded the same. (laughs) I, it's funny because if I were to say Barkley and Barkley in my head, I'm saying two, I'm saying two different words, but yeah, it's like Dawn and Dawn, like the female Dawn and the male Dawn. Like I'm saying two different words in my head, but I would never say Dan. I would never say Dan because I, I ain't from around here. (laughs) All right. 
Pen and pen. Pen and pen. Two different words, same word. Okay, here we go. Uh, Buenos dias, world, from the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. I'm Marco Wint. And I'm Rick Schwartz. And we're your hosts for Season 3 of Amazing Wildlife, a show from iHeartRadio Ruby Studio and the global conservation organization behind the San Diego Zoo and the San Diego Zoo Safari Park. Listen as we dive into the efforts here in San Diego and spotlight the heroes working worldwide to care for the species you know and love. Listen to Amazing Wildlife on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.